Our second reading for tonight is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 56. Starting at verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed, the third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. 
But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Oh, good evening, friends. Um, there is an outline. If you don't have one, uh, you might find that helpful. I'm going to pray that God might help us uh, reflect on this hopefully very moving passage, as you'll find. But let's uh, turn to God again in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we reflect on this passage, we do pray that the meditation of our minds and the convictions of our hearts will be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the um, great joys of being part of a church family or belonging to the family of God, and that is what we are. We are the family of God. One of the great joys is that we get to do life together. And so if there's something joyful, we all celebrate, we join in together, and it's a wonderful thing. I mean, as a pastor, it's of great joy to me after our service each week where a whole bunch of you will hang around you're not wanting to leave, you want to keep me up uh, so that I don't go home so late. It actually brings great joy to me that you enjoy being with each other. We share these joys, we celebrate them together. Or even tonight as we heard of how God has worked in the lives of Winston and Grace, bring them to faith. I mean, doesn't that bring you great joy? We celebrate that together. I mean, for God to save Winston, look at him. But God chooses to save him. That should bring us great joy. We celebrate that together. Uh, Grace uh, shared tonight about uh, her father, whom I still remember, remember fondly. He was one who supported us when we were at Bible college. But isn't that one of the great joys of being part of a church family? We are here for one another. We share each other's joys and we celebrate them. Or when there are weddings. We had a few last year, a few, uh, a few years before that. Another great joy, the church family. We band together, we celebrate, we rejoice together, we praise God. Grace and Winston, I had the wonderful privilege of marrying them a couple of years ago. Grace was one I taught in Sunday school. It's amazing. Now, if I've taught you in Sunday school or youth group, you know what that means, right? It means that you get old one day. But anyway, <laughs> wonderful joy. We celebrate these things together. Or when there are babies in the family, newborn babies, like quite a few up the front this morning, we rejoice together. Now, if you know me, I love babies, especially the cute one, or only the cute ones. In fact, they're all cute getting cuddles each week without the responsibility of nappies anymore. Just wonderful. So it's good for us to remember that. One of the great joys of being involved in a church family is that we are the family of God. We share each other's joys and mountaintop experiences. But of course, belonging to a church family means not only sharing the joys, but also walking alongside each other in our deepest, darkest valleys. I mean, God's provision for each of us as we face those type of journeys, as we are in those type of journeys, is each other. And so as a pastor, my constant reminder to all of us is that we never walk life alone. We bear each other's concerns and burdens and heartaches and hardships for as long as it takes. We share the joys, but we bear the burdens as long as it takes. Now, of course, that's not just counsel that I give, but it's very often that counsel that I need myself. 
knowing brothers and sisters in Christ whom I trust deeply, whom I can confide in my struggles and all my burdens, and to know that I can lean on them, that I can depend on them, and to know that they pray for me. I mean, I need this. In fact, we all need this. We all need it always. But now imagine life where you are in the pits, in the deepest, darkest valley, the worst sense of the deepest despair and distress you could ever imagine. Imagine if you are in that situation and there's no one to turn to, no one to lean on, no one there to pray for you. How agonizing and unbearable that would be. But if you sense even a little bit of that, of how desperate that situation is, which I hope is not your case, because if it is your case, you need to speak up and tell someone. But if you even get a sense of how desperate that situation is, where you feel so lonely, then you'll start to appreciate what Jesus was experiencing in this moving and heartbreaking passage. You see, because in this passage, what we see is that we see this story through the eyes of the Lord Jesus himself as he entered into the deepest, darkest valley of his life all alone. The anticipated desertion that he will experience, this distressing prayer which he prays, and this despicable betrayal which he will suffer. Jesus enters into the darkest moment of his life all alone. So let's have a look. Keep your Bibles open. By now, in chapter 26 of Matthew, it is without any doubt that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. It was with crystal clarity that everything was headed towards the cross. But though he knew it, it did not make it any easier. Nor was it easy, or will it be easy, for his disciples. And that's perhaps why out of care, out of love, out of compassion, out of concern for his disciples, do you see what Jesus did? He warns them before it happened. He warns them, you will all desert me tonight. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus told him, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now that's a quote from the prophet Zechariah. Somehow, it's a fulfillment of the prophecy where God will strike the shepherd, that is the leader of his people. And all the followers, they will scatter, they will desert their leader. And so Jesus already anticipates that the road ahead for him will be dark and lonely. But he will go at it alone. But then notice here, though he will be deserted, he is aware of that. Notice what Jesus promises will happen. Verse 32. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now this is not the first time Jesus spoke about his resurrection, but he's reminding his disciples, whatever happens tonight, you will desert me. Whatever happens, it will not be the end. And so Peter, what happens? He's the leader amongst the disciples. He can't believe it, nor could anyone else. He, he, he's thinking, no way will I desert you. So verse 33, he says, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. 
I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. But of course, Jesus knew all too well everything was headed towards the cross. But yet that journey will be dark, despairing and lonely, deserted by his closest friends, all alone. But he knows he must go. And now in this next scene, we come to perhaps the most poignant, moving, distressing scene in all of scripture. We come to see here not only the internal struggle within our Lord Jesus himself, his distress, his despair, but we get a glimpse into the intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And we get to listen in on his prayer, his heart-wrenching prayer of the God-man Jesus Christ to his Father in heaven. And so what happens? Well, Jesus goes out with his disciples to Gethsemane. He takes three of them, three of the closer ones, Peter, James and John, along with him a little, little further. He gets overwhelmed with sorrow, grief and distress. He's heading into that deep Lonely Valley, verse 38. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. You see, this is a sorrow, an agony, an anguish that is so deep it almost kills. And now we listen in on his prayer. Verse 39. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And while was, Jesus was in this great deep distress, what were the disciples doing? These were his closest friends of three years. I mean, if there's a moment you need your friend most, if there's a moment you need a friend to lean on, to depend on, to pray for you, it is this. But what were they doing? They were falling asleep. Now notice the interesting irony here. Notice, notice what's happening. I mean, I find this profound. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, the one who made everything, the one who made the disciples and gave them life. But yet he would value the moral support and prayers of these fishermen. It's profound. But anyway, he comes back, he finds them sleeping. Now, obviously, they have no idea of the fathomless mystery of what Jesus was going through. And so verse 40, Jesus says, Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. That's perhaps the temptation of deserting him and falling away. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. But Jesus, aware that he must go on this dark journey alone, he returns and prays the same prayer. Verse 42 now, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Now this is, hopefully, we can see here, a deeply moving scene. Perhaps the most distressing in all of scripture. But we must ask, why was it so distressing? Why this anguish? I mean, was this just an overreaction from Jesus? Didn't he already know that he will die? And didn't he already know that it will be by the crucifixion? Well, of course he did. He, 
he prophesied, he predicted it many times. And so why this distress and anguish at this time? Well, here's a few thoughts. Could it be because that day he was aware of was just getting closer and it was just getting too overwhelming? He's sort of like wanting to change his mind. A bit like, you know, waiting in the dentist, at the dentist room, waiting for your appointment. You know, as the day gets closer to die, that's not in the dentist, but here, as the day gets closer, anxiety increases, sweat builds. And does it seem here then that Jesus just wants to change his mind? Though that may have seemed like a good idea when I was born, I'm not so sure anymore. Well, it can't be that. Because everything that was happening right from the very beginning was heading towards the cross with the full knowledge and complete intention of Jesus. And so it can't be that. Or was it because at this point, he just lacked courage, knowing the physical pain of the crucifixion would be excruciating, knowing that he will be flogged and whipped and tortured and mocked and humiliated and crucified? But then what would that say about Jesus if he lacked courage here, if his courage did not hold out, if he feared the pain, that pain would get the better of him? Well, if that were the case, that would make him a lesser man than his disciples. Because what happened later on? Well, in the book of Acts, when the apostles were being persecuted for sharing their faith, they were imprisoned, they were flogged, and most of them were martyred. But what did they say? Well, the apostles said, We rejoice because we have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And so if the disciples showed such firm, unshakable courage when it came to suffer for Jesus, well, it can't be that Jesus did not practice what he preached. Now, of course, if you think about our history, human history, it's not just Christians who have shown such great courage. Many non-Christians during World War II, if you're familiar with what happened, there were these kamikaze pilots who were trained to be suicide bombers to crash their plane into ships. I mean, in the face of death, that's huge courage. That's amazing courage. They were fearless. And so it can't be that Jesus, in the face of death, would show greater fear than the pilots, less courage than the pilots. So what was it? What was it that led Jesus into this deep, dark, agonizing valley of despair and distress? Well, as excruciating as the physical pain would have been, and it was. Now, if you've seen the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, very graphic movie. If you understand that and seen that, then you perhaps get a taste of the horrific, brutal torture as men were uh, whipped and flogged flesh was ripped off their back. It was horrible. It was that bad. But as excruciating the physical pain would have been, as shameful it would have been to be mocked and humiliated and abused, as heartbreaking it would have been to not have one friend to lean on, to be deserted by all of them, as grievous as all those things are, his deep distress here, his agony and anguish here, was because of what he prayed. Not those things. What he prayed. He prayed 
as no one has ever prayed before. Look at verse 42. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. What was it that caused him such great grief and agony? It was this cup. It was the cup of the Lord, the cup of God. But what is that? We see in the Mel Gibson movie, it, it, it made a lot of things right. It was quite graphic and, and tried to capture what happened. But it, in a sense, failed to capture this, perhaps very difficult to capture in a movie. The cup symbolized neither the physical pain or the humiliating shame or even the mental distress of being despised and rejected. Rather, this cup of God which Jesus feared in the Old Testament represented the wrath of God, the full anger and fury of God on sinners. It is the wrath of God that Jesus feared. It represented God's divine righteous anger and judgment against all wicked sinners. That is the cup. To drink of it is to be punished by God. But that was, a, was what Jesus was about to bear on behalf of the world. He was to be the suffering servant of Isaiah. The Lord laid on him, not us, not his disciples, but on him the iniquities of us all. And so the spiritual agony of bearing the Father's wrath, which he has never ever experienced in eternity past, and never, ever will experience again something which he did not deserve and something which is beyond what words can ever express. And that's why in another gospel, we read of Jesus even having sweats of blood. I mean, you go for an exercise, you don't sweat blood. But Jesus did. How do you sweat blood? It only happens under the extreme physical and emotional stress where blood vessels would rupture and push its way through the pores of the skin. You see, it was because Jesus was to endure the divine judgment of God for the sins of the world. It's a mystery what was going to happen. I mean, how do you imagine that? Well, John Stott, he helpfully puts it this way. From this contact with human sin, his sinless soul recoiled. From the experience of alienation from his father, which the judgment on sin would involve, he hung back in horror. You see, what we're meant to understand in this passage, Jesus was all alone. All the while, his friends were falling asleep. Without friends to lean on, without friends to pray for him, experiencing what words cannot express. Experiencing what will never be experienced again. But then how did Jesus end his prayer each time? Look at verse 39. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Do you notice what Jesus did there? He did what Adam and Eve failed to do in the garden. They said to God, not your will, but my will, and disobeyed God. Jesus here instead said, your will, not mine. And what that began to do was the reversal of the curse of the fall. You see, it was the Father's will that will be done. And there will be no other way. In fact, if you think about it, there is no other way whereby sinners can be spared 
of the wrath of God. I mean, if there was another way, instead of Jesus dying, if there was another way, instead of seeing his son crucified, of course God would have thought of it. Of course God would have designed it and purposed it and spared his son. But there's no other way. There is no other way. And so was God's will done? Did God answer the prayer of his son? Well, if you look at this story, it was answered straight away. The mob came and arrested him. But Jesus was prepared. Look at verse 45. Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And so here in this scene, we see through the eyes of Jesus himself what lay ahead for him at the cross. The path which only he could walk, but he walked on behalf of many. And now we come to this final scene. God's will is made plainly clear. The despicable betrayal takes place. Jesus will eventually drink the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs. The mob that came with clubs and swords. And Jesus here is betrayed in the most despicable way. It's meant to help us see that. It was, he was betrayed with a kiss. But what's Jesus' surprise? Look at verse 50. I mean, it's interesting. Jesus still calls him friend. But he says, friend, do what you came for. Now we know in another gospel when Jesus was seized, Peter took out his sword, cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. It was perhaps Peter's way of responding, showing his love and loyalty to Jesus. Because that very night, Jesus said, you will disown me. Peter's now saying, well, I won't desert you, Jesus. Look what I'm doing for you. I'm going to cut off his ear. But of course, the kingdom of Jesus is a different kind. Verse 52, have a look. Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, if you think about this, this is the son of God, the ruler of the universe. If he did not want to be arrested, there was no way for him to be arrested. A Roman legion was about 6,000 soldiers, frightening sight in the ancient world. Jesus says here, I could have caught 12 legions, 72,000 angels. I mean, if you think about it, one angel would probably be enough to wipe out their little mob. 72,000. You see, there was no way to arrest Jesus if he did not give himself over. And it happened. But why? This was God answering the prayer of his son. This is the will of God being done. And this was to fulfill scripture. Verse 56 but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. That is, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, will be numbered amongst the transgressors. He'll be treated like a criminal. And what happened at the very end? Well, the anticipated desertion has now come to pass. The shepherd was struck. And the sheep, what did they do? Verse 56. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. By the end of this passage, no friend to lean on, no friend to depend on, no friend to pray for him. The path ahead 
was dark, depressing, distressing, and lonely. And only he could go. Only he could go to endure the wrath of God. And that was the will of God. And so what do you think we are today as Christians to make of this passage? Well, hopefully it did for me this week. It has at least moved our hearts to see what the Lord did for us. This has given us an insight in the eyes and heart of Jesus what it is that he will endure at the cross. Why it is that he must go. And why is it? Well, it's for the disciples, wasn't it? It was for the disciples who failed so miserably. Their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. You see, there was no way. That's a demonstration to us that there is no way any human being can save themselves. I mean, they couldn't even stay awake. There is no way any human being can face the wrath of God and survive. It was for the disciples. But of course, it is also for us. Just like the disciples, helpless and hopeless. This is for us too. Jesus went that dark, deep valley for us as well. Jesus went alone. He will face the cross alone. will bear the wrath of God alone so that we will never be alone. This is for us too. You see, because of this, we will never have to drink to the dregs the cup of God that Jesus drank. Because of this, we will never have to walk that deep, dark valley of sorrow and distress that Jesus walked. Because of this, we will never have to face the full wrath of God for our sins that Jesus felt. Because of this, we will never have to fall into the hands of an angry God. Why? Because Jesus went alone for us. This is for us too. And so what this means is that if you do not know this, you need to know this. Grace and Winston knows this. They've shared with that, uh, with that uh, to us tonight. What this means is that the safest place to ever be in our life is where the punishment has already been paid. It's where the wrath of God has already been poured. And that is to be with Christ, who has already borne the full brunt of the wrath of God. Now there's this story of American settlers who, who went west to find new land to settle in, to start a new life. Now, over the summer, the, the, this place that they were walking over, the, the summer heat was scorching. The dry grass, it, it, it came ablaze very easily and engulfed the land. And so as these travelers were traveling west, they saw smoke in the distance and they knew that there's a fire there raging for kilometers. But then as they were traveling, as the fire was coming closer, it became increasingly clear that they were being trapped. The river was on the other side, but they couldn't get across. But then one man knew what to do. He said, let's light a fire behind us to clear the ground. And so they did. They lit a fire, they burnt the grass, and it was all scorched. And they moved along on scorched ground. Now as the fire came closer, one girl cried out, are you sure we won't be burnt up? But then the man said, 
My child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has been. You see, the safest place is where the ground is already scorched, and that is to stand with Christ. He alone walked a lonely journey to be scorched, to be burnt, so that we will never have to. He stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. You see, this is for us too. If we do not believe this, we need to desperately believe this. And this is also for us forever. Never alone in this life and the next. Never alone in this life and the next. I mean, this must shape how we live every single day of our life. I mean, I need to hear this just as much as you do. You see, God has not only provided us a wonderful family to belong to, a church family where we walk life together, where we do life together. I mean, the other week I was very glad and joyful. When I was away at the Engage conference, Esther called me and said, uh, you know, my, my wife, Yvonne, cut her finger pretty badly. And I was like, oh, what do I do? I've got no car. How do I get back? Well, who helped her? Took her to the doctors, get her stitched up and uh, looked after our kids. It was the church family that banded together. Wonderful joy, isn't it? And when I have my own struggles in life, it is the church family, brothers and sisters whom I trust, who I can depend on, lean on, and to be prayed for. But of course, God has not only provided us with each other. We see here, God has provided us with his son so that we will never, ever have to be alone in this life and the next. So that we'll never have to experience what Jesus experienced. It's the only reason why Christian disciples after Jesus were so focused, so resolved in living and even dying for Christ. It wasn't because they were more courageous than Jesus in the face of death, but it was because they knew that Jesus is with them. They are never alone in this life and the next. Now, this story of Polycarp, second century bishop of Smyrna, when he was 86 years old, he refused to escape death either by fleeing or by denying Christ. He was burnt at the stakes, but before he was burnt, he said this, For 86 years I have served Jesus Christ, and he has never abandoned me. How could I curse my blessed King and Saviour? The flames will burn him, but he knew the flames will never burn forever. His Lord did not abandon him in life, and he knew his Lord will not abandon him in death. That's how he walked. That's how he lived, never alone. And so I'll end with this question to you. How will you walk this week? How will you walk this life? Well, the answer is, if you stand with Jesus, it is never alone. Always never alone. I'm never alone because this is my saviour who was scorched for me. This is my saviour who went to the cross alone so that I will never be alone. Amen. Let's pray.